Uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We'll read uh, verses 3 to 8 in chapter 1. And then uh, also uh, we'll go to uh, chapter 2 and read the first 13 verses there. I'm starting a, a new series today, as I mentioned in the email that I sent out, um, that, that I've titled uh, The Church as God's Agent for Disruption. Uh, and I think that God is going to be doing some interesting things in the life of City Temple. I've really been praying, and I would ask you to pray for me very intensively, especially over the next uh, couple of weeks. I've really been feeling like God wants to speak in some very important things about the future of the church, where we go, what God wants us to do. Uh, and I know that, uh, for example, this week, uh, getting to this sermon has really been a battle. Uh, it was really a struggle. I felt like I was giving birth in some ways, uh, and I'm not even sure I think it's that great of a sermon. Uh, you'll have to judge later on. Uh, but, uh, but I really do appreciate your prayers. I pray that I, my gift of faith might uh, increase, uh, that anything that's blocking me or hindering me might be removed uh, in the name of Jesus. I would welcome your prayers for that. But now, let's go and read the Word. Um, we pick up with verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And let's go over to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? 
But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. Well, you may know that I am a bit of a Star Trek fan. Uh, I first fell in love with the original Trek when I was a kid, and I watched it in reruns on television. And I've just followed it uh, throughout the years. I I like a lot of things about it. And and if you know much about the Star Trek universe, if if you will, uh, one of the great legendary events in Star Trek history uh, involves something called the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, That was the name of a ship. And the Kobayashi Maru referred to a test that all the officer candidates going through Starfleet Academy, the training ground for officers. It was a test that everybody had to take that was designed to uh, see how you would last under pressure. Uh, The problem with the Kobayashi Maru is that it was a no-win situation. No matter what you do, your ship would be destroyed. Uh, You didn't have a choice about that. Uh, And so Kobayashi Maru has come uh, over time for us Star Trek fans uh, to refer to something that is a no-win situation uh, that anybody that comes into it commanding their starship is is a bit of an underdog. Uh, But actually, there was one person that overcame the Kobayashi Maru, and that was, if you follow Star Trek, Uh, James T. Kirk, James Tiberius Kirk, uh, the captain of the original Enterprise in the original series. Uh, And it comes out in Star Trek II, the film The Wrath of Khan, that James Kirk is the one who defeated the Kobayashi Maru. Now, how can you defeat a no-win situation? Well, he defeated it by going and changing the program surreptitiously so he he could win. Uh, and, uh, and Starfleet was so impressed by his creativity that they passed him. Uh, but he's the only person that was ever allowed to do that. You know, and, and it just speaks to how much we, as, uh, as, as people, we, we love underdogs. You know, we love the, the stories of people facing insurmountable odds uh, against uh, a, a, a system that oftentimes is fixed or rigged. Uh, we love the stories of, of uh, people like the disruptors, you know, who come into a system, who comes into a situation and just, you know, unsettles it all, uh, turns it upside down, turns it on its head. Uh, oftentimes, these people, they, they don't only beat the odds, but they overturn the injustices that cause the odds to be stacked against them in the first place. Now, as we know, disruption can be godly, uh, but it can also be ungodly. It can be holy or it can be sinful. And and the challenge sometimes with disruption is that at first it's difficult to determine whether or not the disruption uh, is something that's being holy or being sinful. You know, certainly that was a challenge that we we see a lot in Jesus's life. Jesus was a disruptor. Jesus was an underdog, if you will, if you think about it, in, in his day, I mean, really, uh, the result of some out-of-wedlock conception, we know it was the Holy Spirit, but people back then wouldn't have known that, wouldn't have believed it, raised in Galilee, uh, which is a, a real uh, rural area 
of uh, Israel in those days. I, I, I was tempted to compare it to some places in the UK, and then I realized that that might be considered a bit uh, uh, offensive to those places. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, in the States, it would be in the rural South, where I'm from, my family is from, so I guess I can compare it there. Uh, and then, you know, he, he comes in, and he does things like overturning the tables in the temple uh, in Jerusalem. I mean, who, who does that? I mean, that seemed to be sinful at first, although we know it was holy. And then it's the guy who's eating with prostitutes and, and tax collectors and other sinners. Now, it's interesting. Jesus was the guy who ate, eats with sinners, but we always must remember he didn't sin with sinners. God himself is a God of disruption, if you will. Uh, in his sovereignty, he enters our well-ordered world and upsets our idols and upsets our certainties about how life needs to work. His spirit can shake us up uh, and shake up our world. You know, just like he said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and in faith, go to a land that I'm going to show you, but you can, you're not going to see it in advance. You're not, I'm not going to give you any travel log about where you're going but I want you to go there and trust me, and it's going to be a great land, uh, and, and I'm going to give it to you. Or in the case of somebody like Gideon, uh, who was uh, uh, a young guy who was hiding in the threshing uh, room, and, and God says, hey, come on, Gideon, I'm going to give you 300 motley crew men, uh, and you're going to go and you're going to beat the Midianites and, and defeat them. I mean, this is a God of disruption, uh, and I think... Uh, uh, God, uh, is, uh, is, it's, he continually disrupts our world. He continually disrupts our life. Uh, he continually disrupts so many of the things that we trust in uh, that are not him. Uh, and on the day of Pentecost, I mean, the Spirit of God came and gave birth to the disruptive church of Jesus Christ. It's not only our God, our Father, who is a disruptor. It's not only Jesus, His Son, who is a disruptor, but the Spirit of God is a disruptor. And on this day that we're celebrating today, He gave birth to a church, and the church became a disruptor. And throughout the last 2,000 years, repeatedly throughout history, God has moved by His Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ uh, so that it has been a disruptor. And God has moved in the lives of His people, uh, many of whom were from humble backgrounds and uncertain circumstances, people like Martin Luther, to cause them to be a disruptor even in the life of the church. In every season of disruption that God brings especially he brings upon the church, he always reconnects us with our birth as the church. And I believe that we are now in a new season of disruption, a season in which God is, going to dis is already uh, allowing the world to be disruptive, uh, disrupted through the COVID-19 situation, certainly has seemed to be at work in our economy causing some disruption there. And, and I think God is moving in the hearts of many Christians around the world, stirring them up, stirring us up to become disruptors ourselves. Disruptors not only for our society, but disruptors for the church of Jesus Christ 
uh, in many places, in many ways, which has lost its way and, and lost its connection with its birth and, and the whole work of God's holy, disruptive spirit. Uh, and so if we want to know how to share with God in this disruptive season, if we want to know how to move with God and become disruptors ourselves in a holy way, not in a sinful way, if we want to understand what God is doing in the power of the Holy Spirit, I think we need to look here at these accounts that we read just preceding uh, and leading to then the day of Pentecost and see what God was doing, see how God was working in those contexts uh, and then reflect on what he might be doing in our own lives there as well. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to walk through the text a little bit and I'm going to give you a few um, observations, reflections, things that I feel like the Holy Spirit might be speaking into my heart to share with you. Uh, and I think it's important not only because for God, what he's doing in your life, but also what God is doing here in the life of City Temple in this season. Sorry about that. So let's begin by turning there in chapter 1. It says here, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we exist as the church, as the people of God, around two central realities that we always must have in mind. We always must have these in mind. First, Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. There are many proofs that Jesus presented that he was really alive, and there are many proofs that we even know today Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That is a solid historical reality, and we always must remember that we exist for and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ himself. The second dynamic here, as you notice that Jesus, in this, the last 40 days before he was to ascend into heaven, what did he focus on? What was he teaching? He was teaching about the second fundamental reality, and that is the kingdom of God. That God's loving rulership was inaugurated in power through Jesus Christ, and that Jesus intended to continue the expansion of God's loving rulership through his people, the church, and that we would need the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in order for this to happen. So those are our two fundamental realities. And it goes on, he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, something we often miss here is that we must remain where Jesus has placed us until he moves us. He told him, stay in Jerusalem. But our problem today is that many times we bounce from church to church. We bounce from friendship to friendship. 
sometimes Christians even bounce from marriage to marriage. They go from situation to situation, uh, always thinking that there's something better. Uh, and this is happening with church leaders too, frankly. Uh, I can't tell you the number of pastors that I have seen over the years that just simply resign their church and move on uh, under the guise of, well, it was the call of God, when actually it had nothing to do with God's call. It was always, all, all, always about their desire either to have a bigger paycheck uh, or a church without conflict. And the problem is the paycheck will never be big enough and your church will never have, con- not, you'll never find a church without conflict. I mean, it always happens. But we must, as Christians, be really determined to stay where God has placed us until he moves us. Now, God can move us. He does move pastors to other churches. Uh, He does move people from church to church. Uh, You know, God is at, at work in our lives, but we need to make sure that it is God here. Another thing that comes through in this part of the passage is that we must wait for God's promise for his announcement, his indicator. That's what the word promise here is. We need to learn how to wait and wait on the Lord. Now here at City Temple, we have been waiting for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit since 2009. That's about 11 years now. Uh, And I keep thinking it's close. I think we're almost there. And then it doesn't happen. We're waiting. And sometimes you can wait for what seems to be an impossibly long amount of time before God delivers the promise. But we need to learn how to wait. And in waiting, waiting is not a passive thing. It's not where we kick back, go sit out in the sunshine, get a good tan, and maybe God will turn up. Waiting is always active. We always engage in what God is telling us to do while we wait. But we wait on Him. We trust Him. And frankly, one besetting sin amongst Christians today is trying to do what God has commanded in their own way and according to their own worldly wisdom. By the way, God calls worldly wisdom foolishness. This is happening. I mean, it's been a besetting sin in City Temple where God speaks and leaders at City Temple throughout history have said, okay, God, thanks. Uh, That's a great vision. That's a great idea. Now let me go and do it for you, and I'll get it done. Uh, And that's a sin. That's a sin. We can only do what God requires with the strength that God provides. We can only do what God demands with the resources that he gives us. We cannot do it in our own way and by our own strength. And we all have a tendency toward that. I mean, I I do that too. I remember a big thing in in my own life. This was probably 25 years ago or so. Uh, I felt uh, that God said, uh, Rod, by the end of uh, May, I think it was, or the end of June, uh, I'm going to provide you uh, a new van. Uh, In that church, we used our van a lot in our youth ministry and things, and we we were between uh, vehicles for that. And so we prayed, and I was really excited and things. Uh, And then toward the end of the month, I I rang up Karen's grandfather and said, hey, would you mind if we borrowed the money to buy this and pay him back? Now, that was a mistake. I was not waiting for God to deliver on his promise. The least I could have done is wait till the end of the month. Let God do it. 
but I didn't. Now, I had a van. We paid it off. Uh, it, was, it all worked out fine, but I missed what God was going to do. And even to this day, 25 years later, I wonder, what would God have done? And could I have spared myself a lot of grief? So we have to be careful there. Uh, a related to sin in all of this is assuming that God has changed his command when he has not. So like I said, you know, to the pastor who God says, I want you to go to this church. And then the pastor gets tired and says, okay, God, well, it's time for me to leave. And then we can, we can convince ourselves, Christians, we can convince ourselves that God has spoken to us when he has not. And I tell you, a lot of Christians over the years that I have seen, uh, I would estimate a majority, maybe 70%, 75 So three out of four Christians over the years that I've seen who said, I think God is telling me this, it wasn't God. It was their flesh. Uh, it was their own ideas. Uh, and especially if God has commanded something and they change the command. They think, oh, well, a lot of time has gone. God must not want me to do this anymore. But as we see in the life of Moses, I mean, God told Moses what he was going to do, but Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before he was doing what God was going to call him to do. So he was 80 years old. Or you look at Abraham. Abraham was a really old guy before he had Isaac. Uh, he probably couldn't even play football with him. He was so old. I mean, that's, that's tough. Tough kid growing up. But that's the way that God often works. And, uh, and then Jesus promises that if we're waiting and if we're following the command of the Lord, then God will provide a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a promise of grace. We must be clear. You don't earn the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You don't work for it. Uh, it's not based on your, uh, uh, on your sinlessness. It's not based on how much Bible you know or how much you pray. It is a gift of God's grace to us. And that grace is going to be, we're going to be baptized in it. Now, what does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God will be poured out, will be immersed in the Spirit. The Spirit of God will come upon us. The Spirit of God will fill us. All of those concepts are related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you look in these texts, you'll see what's happened. You know, God refers to it in, in all of these different ways. So we need to learn these things. Now let's move on. So when they had come the, together, so Jesus had been talking to them. Uh, he'd given them some instructions. And just the day of his ascension, Jesus draws them together to give them a, you know, a last-minute pep talk. When they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what were they expecting? They were expecting that Jesus would fulfill what they'd always believed that the Messiah would do. They believed the Messiah would come in, the Messiah would kick out the Roman invaders. The Messiah would establish the temple in all its glory and all its greatness. He'd raise up a mighty army. And then he would take over as the king of Israel. And so they're saying, hey, Jesus, okay, are you at this time? Are you going to do all of that? You know, we want to kick some Roman backside. You know, can, can, let's do it. Let's do it now. Uh, and, uh, and you know what it tells us here? We always assume continuity 
even when discontinuity is upon us. They had seen some of the most incredible things. Jesus rising from the dead, all the miracles and things that Jesus had done. And they were assuming there would be a continuity with their belief. Now watch, if I draw something for you, imagine in your mind where this is going. Now most of you will think that it's probably going to go that way, right? But from right there, it could also go that way, as we saw with COVID-19. Now, we always tend to assume continuity. We always tend to assume that things are going to continue exactly the same way as they've, quote-unquote, always been. Happened around Martin Luther. The Catholic Church thought things were going to go on just as it had always gone on. Even Luther himself believed that that was going to happen. And it was certainly there happening on the day of Pentecost. And what we learn from the disciples here is that's a dangerous assumption. We must not assume continuity because oftentimes discontinuity is upon us. Um, And we always assume that our previous understanding of things is the correct understanding of things. I mean, I was trained in the Presbyterian Church in the United States. Um, I'm still Reformed theologically, but I've learned over the years that some of the things that I assumed, some of the things that were right, some of the things that were consistent in a Presbyterian kind of context are not really what God is doing in the world today. And so I must not assume that the way I've always understood something is the way that I should understand things into the future. And that something that might have been correct for a season is not necessarily correct into the future, especially if we're in a time of discontinuity, which the disciples were in at that moment, and we are in right now at this moment. We continue. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Uh, this is so annoying, isn't it? It's so, aren't you annoyed? I'm annoyed by this. I mean, it's like, come on, God. You know all this stuff. Give me a hint. I mean, why couldn't God have spoken into my mind back in 1995, Amazon? <laughs> he knew that. I mean, you know, that would have been cool. I, I could have just, you know, it cost me about a thousand thousand pounds and I would be a millionaire right now. You know, and so it's annoying to us. We want God to tell us these things, but we he doesn't. He doesn't. He allows us to discover them sometimes. I mean, this is good news in the sense that the Father knows, and not only does he know, but he determines the times and seasons because he's sovereign. That means no matter what's happening, whether we're in a time of continuity or a time of discontinuity, whether we're in a time of ease or a time of global crisis as we are in right now, God knows this and he is in control. His sovereignty is still surrounding us. So that's good news. But the bad news is it is not for us to know these times and seasons. That very rarely, sometimes God will tell his prophets in advance uh, sometimes he'll tell the prophets as it's unfolding, and sometimes he keeps it a secret. Um, but it's not for us to know. But if we are open and listening and watching and learning, we can often perceive them as they unfold, as long as we're watching carefully. 
Now, I believe globally, we entered a season of disruption in 2001. You know, we think the, the, this pandemic now is the new season of disruption. It's not. The season globally that we entered into, the season of disruption, I believe, started in 2001, uh, not necessarily related to 9-11, uh, but that was part of it. Uh, but it started in the church globally, and it started in the world globally. And we've seen the unfolding over the last 20 years. We've seen the unfolding, the opening up of the season of disruption. It's not over yet. It's not over yet. Sometimes seasons of disruption can last a generation or sometimes even two generations before they are resolved. Uh, and I believe part, a big part of this season of disruption is going to be a global awakening with perhaps a harvest of a billion people coming to Jesus Christ. So we're looking forward to this, and we're praying into this, and we need to be ready for it. Uh, but we'll only know it for sure when we see it unfold. But then let's go back to the text. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. believe the power of the Holy Spirit is coming upon us. And what he says, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, he means two things. It's, it's implied in the text here. Receive one is something that you can't work for, you can't earn. It is a gift that you have to get, and there's nothing you can do to get the gift. Okay? There's nothing you can do. You just need to be in a place of obedience to the Lord. Remain where he said the things we've talked about. But the other dynamic here is very important. As you get the gift, you must take hold of the gift. You know, it's a bit like if, if I had a, a football here uh, and I threw it over to, to Coop that's sitting in the, in the room right now. And I threw it to Coop, but Coop just did this and it hit him in the head and it just kind of rolled down. Uh, his body onto the ground. What's the problem here? I just gave him a free gift of a, a, of a football. Uh, he received it in that he, he, it came to him, but he failed to take hold of it. And many times, Christians, we're not grasping the Holy Spirit that God gives us. Uh, and so we need to be saying, God, how do I grasp hold of this free gift? How do I take hold of that which you are giving me freely uh, of, your own, uh, of your own will? and of your own grace. Uh, but we need to understand as well that the free gift that God is giving us that we receive and take hold of is a gift that will enable us to be witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the call. We receive the Holy Spirit. Power comes upon us so that we can be witnesses. Now note, witnesses are not prosecutors. And witnesses are not judges. And many times, as Christians, we fail to be a witness because we're trying to be a prosecutor. Or we're trying to be the judge. So we pass judgment on people instead of witnessing what God has done, to what God has done. Being a witness is a person who is present and is a person who is sharing their experience. That's a witness. So watch out, don't be a prosecutor or a judge. Uh, and that word witness there 
It's, a, it's used in the same way that we use the word witness today. And it's interesting to note here as well, we begin where we are and then go to the end of the earth. Now, I think we begin where we are, not only in terms of London, but you begin where you are personally. You don't have to be a super apostle in order to be a witness. You don't have to be a super apostle in order to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You begin where you are, and then God will make you a witness in London, in the United Kingdom, throughout the EU, and to the end of the earth. And the exciting thing about the day in which we live is that all of us can be a witness to the end of the earth because of technology, because of what God has empowered. And this is going to become even truer in the disruptive future that God is bringing to us. God is multiplying the witness of the church in this day. So now let's skip down to chapter 2 here. Uh, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We must not miss the fact that we often receive the unfolding of God's will in the place of unity and obedience. They were together in unity in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean they were doing all the same things. Doesn't mean they liked all the same kind of food. They had a unity that was commanded by God uh, and they were there in obedience. We cannot expect God to pour out His Spirit upon us unless we are like the disciples there. Uh, And it wasn't just the 12. There were about 120 people gathered there They were all together in unity and in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice here, When God moves, he is disruptive. There's wind, there's fire. Uh, This was shaking the place. And we see this throughout history. One of my favorite stories about uh, the great Hebridean revival from 49 to 53, which by far wasn't the biggest Hebridean revival, but it's the most recent, uh, happened when they were in a house And they were praying, and one of the guys called out to the Lord and said, Lord, you got to move. And at that moment, the house shook. The house vibrated. Everybody there felt the house shaking in the power of God. Karen and I had the privilege of uh, going to see that house uh, long after it had been shook uh, and was unoccupied. Uh, Now it's been restored and and occupied again. Uh, But it's an amazing thing. God is disruptive when he moves. He messes with our lives. He he doesn't make it easy for us, and it's not always comfortable for us, uh, because God is a disruptive God, and we need to expect it. He's not well-behaved and manageable. He moves on his terms, not ours. Notice here as well that all are filled with the Holy Spirit, not just the apostles. The Holy Spirit lands on everybody that was gathered there, every single person. You don't have to be a super apostle to be filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them were filled with the Spirit. All of them were ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, not just the apostles. 
We must get rid of the notion that some anointed pastor, preacher, apostle, prophet, evangelist, uh, whatever you come to, has to be the one who lays hands on you and sees the Spirit move through you. Uh, That is a lie. It's not biblical. And we need to understand that we all can minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit wants to baptize all of us And we need to be ready and waiting and willing to move and take hold of what God is doing when he does it. And also we notice here that being filled with the Spirit, as they call it here, being filled with the Spirit always leads to empowered, Spirit-empowered action. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and do nothing. Being filled with the Spirit always leads to action. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, we'll continue to the end of the passage here. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. And I'll skip down a a little bit. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with the new wine. Now, just as the Spirit moved at a time when all the nations of the world, the known world at that time, were gathered together, and we have an amazing privilege here in London, and why we're crying out for the move of the Holy Spirit, because all the nations of the world are represented here in London. I I think that London has representatives from every nation on the planet. Just imagine what God can do with that. And we are called to all nations of the world. We are called to all nations of the world. That's why we have our polycultural vision here at City Temple. We want all the nations of the world to come together and gather together. I just wish that we had universal translators like they do in Star Trek so everybody could speak their native language but be understood by everybody else. You know, maybe Google will come up with that eventually. We'll see. Uh, Wouldn't that be amazing, boy, to have church and, and have everybody together and be able to hear everything in their own language. But until that day happens... Until that day happens, we're going to have our polycultural vision. We're going to go for people from every nation, uh, not because we're privileged, not because we're better, just because we're witnesses of all that Jesus Christ has done through God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice here as well that when God disrupts things, God's disruptions attract attention to himself and to his people. God attracts attention to himself and to his people. You know, we don't have to be those kinds of people that are always crying out for attention or scrambling for attention or branding ourselves for attention. God is able to bring disruption that will attract attention. And frankly, when God moves in us, as I believe God is going to do in us as a church, as well as many Christians around the world, I think it's coming. I think it's happening. We need to expect it. We need to pray for it. We need to cry out for it. But you need to understand, when God moves in us, some people will be amazed. Some people will be confused. Wow, what's going on here? And some people will be mocking, saying, it's a bunch of idiots. It's like they're drunk. They're high on something. That's okay. 
That's okay. The questions that people have, the opinions of other people, do not determine the success of God's disrupting. The opinions of other people do not determine the effectiveness of what God is going to do, and I believe God is going to do it. You know, City Temple, we as a church, we began as a church of disruption. We were birthed out of a movement called nonconformity. What is nonconformity? We said, hey, dude, we're not going to bow to a bishop and pray according to some bishop's prayer book. We don't want to read the Bible text that you tell us to read, and we certainly don't want to have somebody authorize who's going to preach and how they're going to preach. We want people to be free to bring the Word of God and to worship God according to their own conscience. That was disruptive. It was so disruptive that in the 1500s, 1560s, people were put in jail. Christians were jailed because of those kinds of attitudes. Now, thankfully, at the time of our founding, 1640, from what we know, people weren't being thrown in jail. But let me tell you, we were every bit as disruptive. We were birthed as a church of disruption. uh, And we today are even known as a church of disruption in many ways. We have been, at various points in our history, a church of disruption. And I believe that God is working in us And God is going to do uh, a new thing in this season that has continuity as well as discontinuity from what he's done before, but could possibly make us every bit of disruptor as we were back in the beginning. What is this going to be? I don't know the fullness of it. You know, the Lord knows the times and the seasons and exactly what he's going to command. Uh, But I've been getting some glimpses, and it could be rather exciting And you know, by the way, the word exciting, it's another word for terrifying as well. We don't know. It's going to require faith. It's going to require obedience. Uh, It's going to require risk, as always God requires during seasons of disruption. We have entered a season of disruption for the global church. We can see it all around us, where God, by His Spirit, and what is happening through COVID-19, he is challenging the way churches have done things, sometimes for decades. And by the way, lest we think that this is all in continuity with everything that's gone before, God has frequently disrupted his church even in the last hundred years. This is just a continuance of the kind of disruptive activity that God is doing and has done. But we can have confidence that God, as he is disrupting things, will use us for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. And we can have confidence that God will fill us with his Holy Spirit afresh and anew so that we as the church might be kingdom agents of holy disruption in church and in world today. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you love us. Uh, We love you as well. We honor you and we praise you. Father, I pray that you just continue to move in the power of your Holy Spirit. I do pray, Father, for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, even today where we are. We say, come Holy Spirit, 
fill us up afresh and anew. And I just invite you, if you're listening, to raise your hands and just say, Come, Holy Spirit, fill me up. Fill me up. As on the day of Pentecost, fill me up. Disrupt my life. And let me be an agent of disruption for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom as a witness to Jesus. We worship you and praise you and thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.